This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. This is Ike Ahmed. And I'm Arsham Shabani. And we want to welcome you to GT the Podcast. We're bringing this to you together with BMC and Glaucoma Today. To offer audible insights into current topics in glaucoma care. Presented by the authors of our latest, most read GT articles. Check it out. Welcome to this special edition of GT the Podcast. In this episode, Dr. Paul Singh shares the results of two surgical case poll questions that were posted on social media. Dr. Singh, Dr. Joe Panarelli, and Dr. Sahar Bedrood then discuss how they would each manage the cases. Will they stick with the audience or choose a different approach? Tune in to Survey Says with Paul Singh. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us in this GT podcast, the March 2022 episode. Um, I'm Paul Singh. I'm a glaucoma specialist out in southeastern Wisconsin. I'm a true Packer fan. I, I do believe Aaron Rodgers will be back. We'll see what happens in a week or so. But uh, I have two amazing colleagues, friends, educators, surgeons, you name it, uh, with me on the line tonight. I have Sahar Bedrood all the way out in the California area, LA area. Welcome, Sahar. Thank you so much, Paul. Good to be here. Yeah, awesome having you. And of course, on the other end of the country, we got everybody covered, man. All the way out in New York, we have, of course, no one else special than Joe Panarelli. What's up, Joe? Thank you. Appreciate you having me here. I'm, I can't say I'm as excited for my Giants or Jets next year, but, you know, we got to have some hope. <laughs> you never know. By the time this actually episode airs, we'll have an answer. I'll look really stupid either way, <laughs> so whatever. But uh, but thank you so much for joining. You know, today we're, we're going to have some fun. So this is kind of a, a newer kind of uh, program in terms of a newer new setup. Instead of just talking about a case or sorry, just talking about kind of uh, an article, we thought we'd kind of do something new. And, and actually, we polled the social media world. And so we actually had two cases that I've seen in my practice that I did surgery on. And we just pulled the audience in the um, social media world, gave them a vignette, and we just kind of get their thoughts on what they would do. So then I was going to ask you, have you two, since you haven't seen the case yet or you haven't heard about the case, I want to get your thoughts on the audience's responses and what the social media world said, and then get your thoughts on what you would do, and then I'll let you know at the end what I did. <laughs> How's that? Sounds good? All right. Sounds All right. great. Loves well, fun. So again, everybody out there, no one knows Sahar or uh, Joe. Does, they have not seen this case before. They did not know the results. So I'm going to share the case first. We'll do the first one, which is a 71-year-old male who had a history of opening a glaucoma for 10-plus years. And patients, like, basically, I don't like taking drops. He straight up says it to me. He's had cataract surgery back in 2014 before really any MIGs. He didn't really have any MIGs at the time. Uh, but then subsequently had uh, a canaloplasty done in 2016. Uh, also, historically, had, had had SLT done before cataract surgery many years before. So SLT, cataract surgery without MIGs, and it had a canaloplasty in 2016. On a bunch of drops, he's actually on five classes of medication, PGA, combination, uh, dorzolamide, as well as notarsidil. So a lot of stuff, a lot of drops. Pressure's in the low 20s, but it's been fluctuating, of course, because of probably compliance issues as well. Has significant SPK and was complaining of fluctuating vision. One of his biggest complaints was vision can't stay still, has a lot of times, has a difficult time reading for a long period of time because it gets blurry. Definitely the ocular surface. But the good thing about this patient is although he had some RNFL loss inferiorly, 
and his right eye. The left eye had a pretty healthy RNFL. His fields were normal in the, in, in, in the um, left eye. Right eye had a nasal defect. Uh, MD, though, was not more than minus, I think, minus like two or minus two and a half. So it wasn't a very advanced glaucoma at all, just a, a nasal defect. So pretty had good central fixation, uh, pretty decent RNFL. I think his RNFL was in the 80s in both eyes total, uh, but had some thinning in the inferiorly. And so his fields look pretty decent as well. So with that said, he's on five classes of medications. He's had a history of abaternal canaloplasty and SLT, catechotry already on five classes, does not have advanced glaucoma, more moderate, mild to moderate right eye, left eye pre-parametric. Let's take, let's let's get your thoughts before I get the audience. What are your thoughts on that kind of a patient? He's telling you he hates drops. He's on five classes. What do you think? Sahar, what are your thoughts so far? Well, I see this type of patient in my clinic quite often. And the first thing I think about when I see the patient, all these different drops, you know, mildly red eyes or moderately red eyes, I really, I ask them how they feel about it, how they feel about being on the drops. This patient clearly doesn't want to be on them. Um, his pressure is in the low 20s. One thought I have is, okay, well, what's his goal pressure? If it's in the teens or, you know, low teens to mid-teens, then I would probably want to do some kind of subconscientival, like a Zen procedure for him, because I feel like I need to get this guy off as many drops as I can. Um, and one of the ways that I can do that is if I do Zen, I'm, I'm pretty good at getting them off of these. The other thing I think about is what have they had already done? They've already had SLT. They've already had an angle surgery. So I'm probably not going to go for another angle surgery or, or repeat SLT for this patient. I'm going to want to do something a little bit more substantial and try to get him off of one or two of the irritating drops. Um, so I think that I would probably go with Zen on this one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. That was great. I'm gonna come back to you some on some questions I have follow up to you, but I want to get Joe's thoughts before I get into your your thoughts more. What do you think, Joe, on this patient? Yeah, I, I'd refer him to you. You're, you're one of the best. <laughs> you can do everything. It's <laughs> so easy for you, man. Like I don't see this kind of like healthy patients. This is, this is kind of like it's the blessing and the curse of being a glaucoma surgeon. Um, you know, in the 2020s here, I mean, it was a lot easier, I think, when many of us did our fellowship and it was really clear cut. I mean, you did tubes, trabs, or you, you, know, you kind of did laser treatment. It's great having all these options, but it, it leaves you sort of full of doubt now about what is the best option to choose for our patients. And, you know, quite frankly, it's, it's, it's a tough case because the, the, the tough issue here is the patient's desire to get off medical therapy. I think that changes the game. If you're talking about a patient here who's progressing at a pressure that we don't like, who's you know maybe willing to take a combination agent down the road, I think that opens up the doors uh, you know to a, a number of surgeries. But to me, even though I'm a huge fan of subconjunctival MIGs, this patient has you know had a number of surgeries, five classes, failed angle surgery. I'll be honest, I'm probably leaning towards some type of tube shunt with a smaller end plate uh, if I want to be the hero here and get the patient off all drops completely. That's just my initial thought. Interesting. Okay, no, I appreciate that. I want to tell you, I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions, but before I do that, I want to kind of get what the what the audience said that I want to ask you guys some follow-up questions to that. So, with this patient, the 71-year-old female, uh, male, uh, we had a couple going I think on LinkedIn and Twitter, I believe, uh, is what we we looked at. And so, in the audiences, majority of the audience went for a subconjunctival surgery of some sort. It was kind of 
mix between depending if you're on LinkedIn or if you're on Twitter. Uh, but I think for, for Twitter people, it was like kind of a it was a subconscious mix, like a Zen pressure flow or like a trabeculectomy tube shunt with the other options that people had majority of. Not many people really wanted to go back in the angle like you guys were saying. Uh, and if you look at the other uh, social media platform, it was majority subconjunctival MIGs, so kind of Zen pressure flow, and just a few said trabeculectomy. But again, very few people went back into the angles. So to the point, yeah, go ahead. I think I would say that the only time I'd consider going back into the angle here would be to do some sort of stripping procedure if this patient had some sort of secondary open angle glaucoma. If you told me this patient had pseudoexfoliative disease, or maybe had pigmentary glaucoma, then maybe I'd consider going back and doing some sort of stripping procedure. But if we're just dealing with straight primary open angle glaucoma and you've already done canaloplasty, that that probably would lead me away from doing something like a KDB. That's just my thoughts. I don't know. Sahar, what about you? You know, I think one of the things that had like me, it was kind of my decision point for this case was looking at the mean deviation for the um, for the eye that we were looking at. And he has such a small defect. For me to go in and put in a tube shunt or a trap would be, again, I agree with you. Maybe five, six, seven years ago, yeah, absolutely. I did traps on everybody. It was great. Uh, but given that his nasal defect is so low, um, it's so small, I, I don't. I just don't think that I would. Um, I would do any kind of large implant or or a trap for this patient at this stage. Uh, so. But again, it depends on what social media uh, <laughs> this came yeah, through. Really I would answer differently. Twitter versus like LinkedIn. If you ask me, yeah. If you ask me via LinkedIn, I'll answer differently, okay? <laughs> no, but I think one of the other quick things, sorry, um, just here is, you know, kind of how the patient feels about having additional surgery. So I agree, Sahar. You know, there's a, a Zen or a Preserflow makes total sense. Uh, again, if the Preserflow were available at this point. Um, as long as the patient knows that they may be heading down the road of another surgery, it just depends on how they've handled, you know, I've had SLT, I've had, you know, you know, some sort of canaloplasty. Some of them are, are cool with that. They're like, okay, I want to try all the least invasive things first. Others kind of are like, why are we not, why are we not succeeding doc? And I think it depends on which kind of patient you have. And I don't know, Paul, have you had that experience with that? I feel like in, in, on both of the coasts here, we get a little bit of that where they come to me on their fourth opinion and they're like, doc, you got one shot. So you better get this right. We'll mess it up. No, I mean, I think these are great points. I, I, it goes back to so what I what did I do? I did a Zen, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you kind of why. And and I think doing a, doing a goniotomy like a Coke dual blade absolutely warranted if you want to. Here's what it comes down to, though. And I think what the discussion I want to have with you guys is what is our definite? What are we trying to achieve, right? If if there's some people where the pressure is like 40, and you go like, I don't care if you're back on five beds, you're going down to the safe zone. We'll deal with whatever you know drops you're on. I don't care. But this patient, he was actually not bad. He was a little borderline pressure, but he wasn't. Oh my god, I'm in trouble. My goal was just to get him off the meds because he was saying I hate meds, right? And so the reason why I thought like, okay, don't go back in the angle, not that a goniotomy like wouldn't, wouldn't work. I think it probably would have got him off a couple meds, probably would have got him down even lower. Maybe got him off of all, who knows? But but because you said, like you said, his SLT didn't have a great outcome. He had ABIC and that didn't really work as well as I wanted to. I was like, look, I think this is a patient who I want to just kind of bypass the outflow system completely because I'm thinking there's probably resistance throughout the whole pathway. And therefore, let me just hedge my bets, so to speak, because my definition of success for me in this type of patient was really 
the medication burden reduction as much as possible. So that's why I went the subcon route. And to Sahar's point, like, you, like you're right, man, a, a tube or a trab would work well. It, it's definitely warranted. But I felt like I always have the opportunity, you know, as explaining to the patient, look, this is a safer way of doing some of these subconjunctival surgeries. I can always do the traditional surgeries later on, but let's just try this if I can get you off of meds. And because we're instituting subcon surgery earlier, not like an advanced patient, our target pressure isn't 12, isn't 10. So if this patient's pressure is 18 off of meds after a Zen, sweet. And that's why when you think of like, when you look at bleb needling rates, you think, oh my God, my needling rates are 20% or 30% or 15%. A lot of times you have to ask the person or ask yourself, well, are you needling because our pressures were 30 or because they were 18 and you want it down to 12? Right. And so that's where I find that if you tar do these patients Zens, let's say in this case, when they're not as advanced, we're not having to push them so hard to get them down to lower teens where they kind of settle at 15, 16 range. Even if there's a little bit of teenons there, it does well. And I'm, I'm okay with that for this kind of a patient. So that's kind of why what was interesting about this is you're doing a subcon surgery for someone who doesn't have advanced glaucoma. And it comes down to the question of, and love to hear your thoughts. What is your definition of refractory glaucoma, right? Because Zen is a refractory glaucoma diagnosis or indication. And is this patient refractory, even though he has mild to moderate glaucoma? To me, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Is that is your definition of what is refractory different now than it was, let's say, five, ten years ago? It's a great question. It's an interesting question because, you know, when you look at the pivotal study uh, that Devinder published in, in AJO, you know, it talked about these refractory patients. And if you looked at how many in the trial were truly refractory, and to me, refractory are people who are at high risk of filtration failure. So to me, that typically means having had prior incisional conjunctival surgery. Um, but there are a subset of patients in that study who are just on max medical therapy, and that was also considered refractory. So to me, those are two really different groups in terms of, you know, which group is really at high risk for filtration failure. So, um, you know, I think it's a great point, Paul. I, I would consider this person, you know, refractory. They're on five classes of medicines they've had in, uh, you know, an angle procedure. So I, I would consider this refractory. I don't think this has to mean just that you've had a, a prior trab or tube to truly be refractory. So how are your thoughts? You know, I know you do a lot of subcon surgery too, of all kinds and as well as angle-based. Do you consider refractory glaucoma different? Do you define it differently than, than you did, let's say, five, 10 years ago? Yeah. I mean, refractory glaucoma for me right now as it stands is, for me, I define it as someone who has in not no, resp no adequate response to their medications or an intolerance. To me, that's equal. So if they are on five medicines, but their eyes beat red, and they're complaining of itching or whatever, they just don't tolerate it, then that to me is valid and, and important because they're, they are being treated and they're not responding or they're not tolerating it. And if they're not tolerating that, eventually they'll stop taking it. So it will end up being the same situation where they get some kind of progress or worsening of their glaucoma. So yeah, this is refractory, especially in light of already having multiple procedures, SLT and ABIC. So I, I would I would consider this um, refractory in the sense of yes, not responsive and or intolerant. But is it really advanced glaucoma? No, it is not. And I and it's I don't want to sit there and wait until it is advanced so that I can you know meet my definition and then do surgery. That that would be wrong. So I getting these patients a little bit earlier than I feel comfortable when the procedure itself is so safe. Um, is is really important. And I'll define that to the patients. I'll let them know. And I say, look, this if this particular um, procedure fails, which means either I need to put you back on all the drops or if this gets scarred down for some reason, I'll either have to do a secondary surgery, revision or needling, um, or I'll have to do a trab or tube. 
and you know, I preface that and they almost always will be like, yeah, I'd rather do the, the more safe procedure or the little bit uh, shorter, less invasive procedure first. No, it's great stuff. Great stuff. And yeah, and I have, I have this picture. You can't see it, unfortunately, but I have a picture of this patient's blood. It looks nice and healthy and diffuse. And he's off the topical drops, his mild SBK now versus two plus SBK. And uh, he had a great course. He's actually um, now about a year out plus, and he's pressures around 13 off of meds. So he's doing really well. Of course, these are always the ones you want to show showcase, right? Because they did so well. Not everyone does that great, but, but it's always fun to see that. And so for me, it was an issue. Now I did, I, I did, will tell you that nowadays, mm-hmm. When I do uh, any subconscious end with these many drops, I try to take them off the drops. I'm not sure. Do you guys do anything real quick just before we take too much time here? But for subconscious, whether it's trap, tubes, zens, whatever, do you take them off meds? Do you get the conch quiet and healthy? Do you put them on steroids? Just curious on how that works for you guys to get them ready to yeah, go. Yeah, I, I do. I try to. If they can tolerate it, this patient will be able to tolerate it given that his you know his visual defect's not too bad. So I, I will take him off of all the drops. If I have to put a diamox on, I will. If I, you know, if sometimes I'll put Darista in just to get kind of just that quiet eye as much as I can, and then take them into surgery about six weeks later, uh, and maybe preemptively start them on some steroids if they can tolerate it. But I don't want the steroid response either because then it masks the success of the surgeries. So <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a fine balance. How about you, Joe? Do you do anything to kind of prepare these eyes? Yeah, I, I I tend to probably just pre-treat with some steroids. I'm pretty aggressive with mimonomycin C for any of these subconj MIGS procedures. Um, and then I hit them pretty hard with steroids after. So I think you bring up a great, a great point, though. This is sort of this new class of procedures, these microinvasive bleb-forming surgeries. And they really hopefully will bridge the gap between our canal-based surgery and our traditional glaucoma surgery. And so I, I think this is a great, a great place to add it in there. And again, just a lot depends upon you know, what the patient is hoping to achieve. I think the, the hard question here was getting them off all meds completely. Um, and, and that's the one thing sometimes with some of these bleb surgeries, they're on a med, maybe two, just depending upon where they started from. But it sounds like you had a great, end, you know, outcome with this. And so, you know, I think we're, we're excited with what the Zen offers us. I think we're hopeful to have the Preserflow at some point available to us. And it just, it just makes us better surgeons to have all these tools. This episode of GT The Podcast is supported by Alcon. Yeah, I think earlier intervention definitely for these. Yeah, and that's kind of where I, to your point, that's kind of the sweet spot for me where Zens really fit in is that patient who you're like, I don't want to do a trab on them, but I don't want to wait to just do yeah. nothing. <laughs> it's like I think if you, uh, went, <laughs> if you went to shunt, you know, if you if you prefer, this is a nice place for an Ahmed. It's a nice place for a 185 Multino, a very small end plate. You don't need a 350 bar vault in this patient. You just need to get the pressure down safely to something reasonable, like you said. 15 to 22, this patient's probably, you know, a, a home run if you can get them off meds and get them at that pressure. Even if they're like, tw- honestly, between you and me, if they're like 18 to 20 even, but stable, like not fluctuating, that would in itself would be a huge benefit for me as well and watch this guy. So yeah, great stuff, guys. And lastly, you know, those of you who are like, hey, but I really think I want to go back and do, let's say, a hook dual blade or an Omni and do a GAT. I, it's still warranted. Definitely don't feel like you shouldn't do that. You know, just there, the chances of you getting off all, of all the medications may not be quite as high as a subconscious, but you never know. I've been surprised too. So uh, a great case, guys. Thanks for that discussion. Um, so I'm going to move on, but that was awesome. That was, we have one more case. So stay on time here. <laughs> so this is another one here. This is a, another mixed case, a 67-year-old African-American male, history of glaucoma for eight years, had low blood pressure. 
had a family history of glaucoma. Uh, I think his mother had glaucoma, had not had lost any vision, but did have surgery, as what he said. Has sleep apnea, too, just to add some more fun to it. Uh, uh, let's see, latanoprost, romanidine, timbalol, and vernzolamide. So four classes of meds. Pressure's in the lower teens, though. It's been stable in the lower teens, T-max, low 30. So on four meds, low teens for a long time. Has some SPK, is pseudophagic, had cataract surgery many years ago. And has open angles, has a lower um, hysteresis. I'm a big fan of hysteresis. Lower hysteresis, you know, a little higher risk factor if you have a low uh, hysteresis number. So eight and a half, ten and a half is normal. So uh, pachymetry was normal. The fields, though, were actually interesting. So the, the left eye was pretty healthy. Right eye did have significant field loss. Um, actually had some nasal defect. It was encroaching on fixation, but his MD is about a minus five. So it wasn't horrible, but he had some defects that were getting closer and closer to fixation. So moderate glaucoma in that right eye. But they were stable for the last four years, over the last, sorry, three years. So fields have not gotten worse, and his pressures have been stable over the last three, four years. But he's on four classes of medication and just not happy with taking meds. So with that said, no history of angle-based surgery before. Has a history of a cataract surgery already, pseudophagic, so he's not likely going to do stent. What are your thoughts? Stable, stable fields. Pressures are 13. What are you going to do? I'll start with Joe this time. Can you just refresh me again, Paul, since I'm just hearing this? Are the fields <laughs> stable or are the fields worse? Yeah, fields are stable. So left eye is pre-parametrics, not too bad at all. Right eye has some moderate glaucoma, MD about minus five, but he has some loss getting closer to fixation, but it's stable. No progression on fields, no progression on OCT, and his pressures have been stable in the 13 range for the last three, four years and has not progressed. This is not a progression disease issue so far. It's a patient saying, I'm sick and tired of being on four classes of medications. And he's pseudophagic, already had cataract surgery, never had an angle-based surgery before. Oh man. I'm just I want to I want to keep thinking here, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to step up to the plate here and, and see what I can do. Um, you know, again, it, it's 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 a tough one. I'm looking at all the risk factors that you just described. I'm, I'm you know, looking at the listening to the visual fields and, and sort of what's been going on, you know, what you have going for you is that the patient sounds like they've been stable. What you have going against you is the fact that the patient forgets their drops, has a family history, and again, has that visual field loss that, that worries us. This is the visual field loss that the patient's going to notice when it's encroaching fixation. This is the, this is the field loss we, we can't get back, and this, this will you know, eventually you know, potentially lead to some, some impairment to the patient. So um, I got to be honest, if you just put me on the spot and I, 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 I got to give you an answer right now, I'm, I'm probably tubing that right eye. I, I got to tell you, I love tubes. I, I just do. I, I trained in Miami. It's uh, the tube capital of the world. Um, looking at the patient's age, you know, age is playing a big role. Patients are living longer. Uh, patients are, you know, living now into their 80s, 90s. So I'm not looking at treating this for, for three years, four years, five years. So to me, I'm probably with that field loss encroaching fixation. I think tube is reasonable. You look at the results of the TVT, you can slice it, dice it, however you want. But to me, the right eye gets some sort of traditional glaucoma surgery. The left eye is a little more interesting. The left eye, I think I'd be, I'd consider doing, um, you know, maybe an angle-based surgery first, depending upon how well that first, first eye went. But honestly, if the first eye went great and the patient was happy, I have just go ahead and do the same thing in the left eye. I'm a big fan of doing that sometimes. If it worked in the first eye, do it again in the second eye. That's it. I'm done. All right. So, all right. Your turn now. Now you hear what you did. My approach is a little bit different. I like to keep things fun, you know, not, not do too many <laughs> tubes in my clinic. Love the post-ops, you know. 
So this guy has a lot of risk factors. He's African-American, family history. You're throwing in some some weird things like my low blood pressure, sleep apnea, which hints at like a normal tension situation. C-Max is in the 30s. So then I'm like, well, then I can't really be normal tension, low tension, low pressure. But here it is. So the right eye is an early nasal step. Left eye is moderate glaucoma. I actually would do- Left, no, left, eye, left eye is healthy. Right eye has um, nasal defect encroaching on fixation. Okay. So the right eye is worse, right? Right eye right is worse. And that's the one that has more nerve fibrillate loss as well. Okay. My initial, yeah, I would probably do a trab, a trabeculectomy on the right eye, and I would do an angle surgery on the left eye. But I would first do the angle surgery on the left eye just to see how the response is. If it's, if it's like no response at all, then, um, then I know that I'm definitely going to do a trab on the right eye. If I do the angle surgery, um, and probably it would be goniotomy, canaloplasty, then and then and he responds really well and the pressure goes low then then i know that i could try that at least first for a patient with one plus tm pigmentation maybe it'll work on the worst eye uh but typically this guy is young typically they're going to need something else i might want to just cut to the chase and go to a trav or a tube but i would i would play around with this i'm willing to do an angle surgery in the better eye get him off the drops, see how he responds. And then no two eyes are the same. That's the other problem, right? So I could do do the angle on this eye, but the other eye is worse glaucoma, maybe more downstream effects of glaucoma, which would not be very successful with angle surgery. So I'm going to, to shorten my answer, I think I'll do a trap on this guy. <laughs> trap. It's a good question. You know, looking at especially this right eye, which, you know, you're saying kind of has more moderate disease, what we think of the outflow system. You know, I, I think you have way more experience, uh, at least than I do, with dilating and then, you know, mixing in some stripping. I think that's something I got to add to my repertoire. I just, I'll be honest, I don't do enough of it. So I am probably a little bit shy about doing that when I can go to something that I've just done so many of that I know how to troubleshoot. Uh, and that's probably why I, I go towards something maybe that is a little more aggressive because it's just more comfortable to me. And I think that is one of the problems we have is just getting comfortable with all these surgeries. I mean, I think if I, if I had you sitting next to me doing the ABIC for me and then Sahar doing the KDB, I think I could say differently. I just, you know, I tend to talk about what I do in my hands. And one other thing, and I think, you know, you guys would all agree is a lot of us do like to teach. And, you know, when you're, when you're teaching and doing surgery with, with, you know, some of your trainees, you know, you make this look easy. This stuff is not easy trying to, you know, couple a few of these uh, angle-based procedures together. And I, I don't know, can you speak to that a little bit, the complexity of, of, of getting to learn all these procedures? Because I know you are like a master of the angle. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a master, but I love, I love playing with it at least. Um, no, you know, honestly, I, I think the issue is this. There's no right or wrong answer. On, I, we just don't know where the resistance to outflow is. That's the problem. The problem is we don't have a pre – when you look at the gonio in your office, you're like, oh, I look at the angle. It's open. It's got two-plus pigmentation, no PAS. That's all you got. <laughs> it doesn't tell you it's PMs, it's Schlem's canals, the distal channels. So so a lot of times it doesn't matter how severe their damage is or how severe their glaucoma is. My, my thought is like how do I uh, conceptually understand what's the resistance and where the resistance to outflow is? 
And so that's why I do, I do like to hedge my bets. I do like to do a lot of viscodilating with anatomy, you know, whether it's, whether it's viscodilation and KDB or viscodilation and then, and then uh, gently cut with, a, with an omni, whatever it is. Uh, I think that, that that combination of trying to address more than just the TM, more than just the canal as much as possible is what I like to do in general, whether it's with cataract and, and stenting or as a standalone. How much cutting with, with the dilation? So maybe, maybe I'm just learning all this for the first time. You dilate 360. And I know it's going to vary, but how much cutting should we be doing? Is it a few clock hours? Is it 180? Is it the whole 360? Does yeah. it matter if you've dilated, if you then rip everything open? Why'd you even dilate? So, so make me smarter. I love it. So first of all, we don't have great data yet to support is 360 better than 180. I can tell you anecdotally and some of the studies that I've seen come out are showing that there's no really no significant difference in terms of outcomes between 180 cutting versus 360. Okay, so that's why I, for me, if I'm doing, let's say, an Omni, I'll do three, I'll do 180, even like 90 sometimes, depending. And if I do a KDB, I just do as much as I can at the nasal angle, pretty much. And we've seen really down to the middle teens, where, where where I have found the benefit of combining viscodilation. So why we viscodilate first and then cut? To your point, dude, you've opened up the crap, you've opened it up. So why does it matter if you viscodilate it? If you have a closed system and you viscodilate first, then the theory is that you're able to kind of force that into the into the clutcher system. Now we have intraoperative OCT using like the iTrack catheter. And, and even the Omni and showing us when we viscodilate, you can see in a closed system that Schlem's canal not only open up, but the distal channels go. Whoosh. I mean, it's pretty, really cool. I have some videos I'll share with you guys. But so you do see that it is going into this into the distal collector system. Then you open up the TM as well. So you've got you had a closed system to flush out the stuff in the to the to the uh, distal channels. Now some will go back into the anterior chamber as well, but that giving us that opportunity to flush out the distal channels and then kind of gently cutting or removing whatever you want to say, doing a goniotomy allows us to then have that access to the TM long-term as well. That's the theory behind it. Now, where I found the, the benefit of combining with stenting, combining with viscodilation and cutting has really been the medication burden reduction. I agree. You're not going to get to 10. I mean, it's not going to happen, right? you got the EVP. You're going to get to the same middle teens like you always do with the angle-based surgery, 14, 15, 16 range. But what I've found clinically is I'm able to get people off of meds more than often than not when I combine these, when I'm doing that viscodilation and the cutting as well. And so that's kind of where I, why I do the combos a lot is because I found in our clinical practice that we have a better chance of getting people off of the meds, not getting them much lower. You're going to get the middle teens. It is conventional outflow. But that's kind of where, where I'm at with that. What about you, Sahar? I know you're doing a lot of angle-based stuff. Do you find that too as well sometimes? I do canalplasty with the goniotomy, but what I'll do is 360 canalplasty, open things up. Uh, and again, I find this, you know, I either... We'll do it in patient. It's like I say, I'm like, I like to do early intervention, but I'll, I'll re, I will reserve this for the more advanced patients or patients who have pseudo X or pigment dispersion, because I feel like I have to have a reason to remove that tissue. Um, and it might still be working well in the early stages. And I rather put a stent in there. Um, but going back to the point, yeah, I rarely will do a 360 um, goniotomy. I like to do, you know, open it up and then do an inferior nasal goniotomy um, on, on the patients just to see and make sure that, um, you know, I, again, I want to actually still try to spare some of the tissue if I can. Yeah. The, the medication burden reduction is where I'll start to use the otomy. If I have a mild patient parametric, let's say a phacic, I try not to cut as much as possible. I try to maximize the health of the TM. And maybe, you know, if I have to do some newer technologies coming out with microgoniotomies, you know, uh, something called Streamline, something called iAccess, or some of the different things that are coming out that might give us a little bit less, less need to remove as much tissue. But the bottom line is the more phacic they are, the younger they are, I like to save as much TM as possible. But if they're on like four or five meds, 
then I'll try, I'll, I'll use some type of automy with it, do like a 90 degree, 180 max, and then at least save some TM later on. So I'm not sure that helped your, 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 your question or answered your question, Joe. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's awesome. I, I mean, I think that many of us have, you know, I, I, I definitely probably don't do as much, but I still do a good amount of angle surgery. I, I got to tell you, the only thing I get, uh, the only extra benefit I get from a, a 360, and I want to call it a benefit, is I, I get more bleeding. That's the only extra. Exactly. So I, I really, I've been doing, I, I go 360 and then I, I sort of open up around 180. That's what I've done with a few cases recently. And I, and I feel like that's the sweet spot. Um, whether I could go less, I don't know. But I, I definitely think uh, 360 definitely does tend to give a bit more bleeding. Yeah, and I think the key, the one thing I'll just to all, all those uh, listeners out there is if you get if you get a lot of heme intraoperatively, you know, not only going to flush it out and, and hyperinflate the eye, but to me, what am I? Uh, I guess one of my pearls that I've learned over the time is when you get to the point where it's hyperinflated and you just don't see any reflux of blood, don't just decompress it back to physiologic IOP. Slowly decompress it. That's what I found. Give chance for that episcleral venous pressure and the intraocular, intraocular pressure to kind of equilibrate. So I'll get it to nice and tamponaded, and there's no more heme reflux. Then I'll just damp, perp the wound gently. Wait another 10, 20 seconds. Burp again and wait. Burp again and wait. So, so you slowly decompress the eye. That way you don't get that sudden decompression again. Then all of a sudden, an hour later, they have a heme, you know, a high femur in the eye. Yeah, I think so, it's, it's all about I'll, I'll even leave them. I'll accept that high pressure on day one. I would always, I almost always would prefer that the high pressure was uh, created by me uh, in terms of me leaving viscoelastic in the eye versus there being a big clot of blood in the eye. And that's why, because uh, I could always burp a little viscoelastic out on the first day as opposed to having to wash out. Yeah. Great That's point. good advice, Paul. I like that. I like to, you know, because you're right. What happens is you hyperinflate and then you go in with the IA, right? And you're like, decompress everything. You, sh you come out and it's bleeding again. But I think if you do it slowly and then take out some of the viscoelastic, um, maybe just with your BSS cannula, then that might be a little bit more effective to reduce the heat. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't like what I was saying? Just leave all the viscoelastic in there? It's all good? <laughs> Just burp it out little by little every day. Just keep that 30-gauge needle. Just tell them to just keep it right. in their eye every hour or two. And every time they get that headache, just stick it in there. You are a true glaucoma surgeon. You know that? <laughs> you have fellows though, right? What's that? You have fellows? Oh, yeah. See, that's the thing. Welcome oh, yeah. to fellows. I got residents. I got plenty. I got, I, got, I got a son and a daughter who are getting good at this stuff. They're, they're eight and six. My son came to work the other day. They can do pairs and pieces in their sleep now, man. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, hey, before we go, I want to share with the audience what the uh, what the uh, the social media said. So we didn't get a chance to talk about that. So depending, <laughs> this is so funny, guys. Depending if you're a Twitter or LinkedIn, one of them said um, to they wanted more SLT and uh, goniotomy or GAT kind of a procedure, and very few wanted to have a subconjunctival surgery. And then the other social media was more on the subconj type of surgery, whether it's MIG, subconjunct, or TRAB, or TUBE. So interesting. This is really fascinating. LinkedIn and Twitter are different type of population of surgeons. That's really interesting. We should do a study on that, guys. We should. <laughs> we should. But it really is a testament to it. it there's no right answer. And Absolutely. it depends on the surgeon in combination with the patient in combination with how many fellows you have to burp the wound after the case. <laughs> That's it. That's it. I, but again, just, just quick, I do like... So the subconj stuff, definitely the the subconj, you know, these new bleb forming procedures, it is it is a nice spot. I think we're just still still working out how to get our, you know, ideal outcomes with a lot of these new micro shunts. And I think that's that is also what's a little bit tricky. But again, I, I think it's nice to have so many options. I think, you know, you could do so many things here. I think I know what you did, and I'm I'm waiting to hear. 
Ah, what do you think I did? Dude, you went 360 and you, you did anatomy. I know you did. Yeah, do I think so too. I did a subcon surgery, dude. <laughs> what I did was actually, so I did subconscious in the right eye. In the left eye, I did do um, a goniotomy. Discodilating combo. So to, to, I did what Sahar was saying. The other eye, I kind of said, look, man, it's, it's got pre-parametric glaucoma. I got time. Let's just figure this out. Let's just get the pressures down if I can, even if I have to go back on one drop. Right eye, I was a little bit more concerned because he's African-American, all the risk factors. And he had, even though he wasn't progressing, I was like, I don't want him to go back up to 16 and have to deal with adding a couple more drops. So um, that's kind of what I did. But I, I think there's, there's your point, guys. There's no right or wrong answer. It's your comfort level and what you're used to doing. And if you really don't feel comfortable doing subcon surgeries, then do your, do your MIGs of angle base and then send them out to someone if you think you need to. As long as I think as long as we educate patients to understand that there's no one right or wrong answer. That's and it. That we're doing what we think at this time is best for them, but it can progress. It may need something more done and that's okay. And I think as long as you have that in mind, I think it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't understand the limitations of that procedure. And I think getting a good response in the first eye opens up the door a little more in the second eye. So they, they there's a little more trust that you've established with the related, with the patient. And so, you know, say that angle surgery doesn't quite get where you want in the second eye, you can then move on to the more aggressive intervention. And they're with you because they've already had it done in the first eye and had a good outcome. So I think sometimes you got to play that game a little in your head, you know, in terms of how do I, how do I build this relationship with the patient? Yeah. And you can go back. I'm just a little, well, last thing I'll say is you can go back and do a viscodilation anatomy in patients who've already had a subcon surgery. I've done that too. And there's actually there's, there's studies with stenting now too, as well, looking at post, uh, you know, incisional surgery as well. So it doesn't mean we have to give up on the angle too. So there's some patients who have had unhealthy cons. You're like, I don't want to do a third or fourth tube. You're like, let me see if I can go back in there. And I'm once once they've see. had subcon surgery, I put the gonio away. I don't even take it back out. Bring it back. I'm telling you, man, you can, you can reassess. But hey, this was Awesome, man. I would love to. You guys are so much fun to hang out with. Thank you guys so much. It's an awesome discussion. I learned so much from both of you. And um, I want to thank the audience for taking the time to listen to our podcast. Stay tuned for another GT podcast coming up as well. But until then, stay healthy, happy, enjoy life. And uh, thank you, Sahar. And thank you, uh, Joe. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you for tuning into this episode of GT the Podcast. If you have any feedback or topic suggestions, find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on GT The Podcast.